0: entrepreneurship, defined pretty broadly, not just the type of entrepreneurship venture capitalists deal with, but a much broader range of entrepreneurship, is gonna be the predominant way that people work in the decades to come. That's why I call it startup century. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp Podcast.
1: Everyone, today I'm very excited to be uh, interviewing a fellow author, James Wise, uh, a good friend, known him for a long time. We're going to be hearing about his background, so I'm not going to totally get into that just yet. But the reason why we're having the conversation is because he's recently wrote a book that I'm hoping you guys have a chance to read at some point, maybe during the holidays or right after, called Startup Century. And we'll get into that in more details. But first, let's hear from our guest. James, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, let's start off with your background. How did you end up in Balderton?
0: Yeah, well, well look, I uh first of all I, I you know, should divulge I've probably known you for uh, almost 10 years now, I think. Um, you know, we've both been around the European venture scene for quite a while and it took me writing 75,000 words to get invited on your podcast. So thanks so much for that, Carlos. I really appreciated it. So I've been in European Venture now for 13 years. I've been at Boulderton for 11 years. I've been a partner here for almost six years now. But going all the way back, I started my career working odd jobs. I grew up around entrepreneurs. I didn't know anyone really had a stable career, Uh, obviously outside of people who maybe worked as nurses or carers. Everyone I knew was People who were in sales, but sort of traveling salespeople, they were entrepreneurs setting up their own businesses, they were in real estate, you know, my dad sold secondhand cars, he worked for himself and with one business partner. And so as a kid, that's what I did. I had a load of different odd jobs, I worked in a garden center, I worked as a waiter, I worked in sales. But the one thing that stuck eventually when I was like 15, 16 was website building. I don't know how old some of your listeners are, but if you remember sort of Dreamweaver at the time being cutting edge software and, you know, grappling with releases of HTML and CSS, that's what I did in my spare time. And that was the best paid side gig I had. So I've been building and fiddling with technology for a long time. But then I did what I was told to do basically at school, I went off and studied politics and economics at university. And I joined McKinsey because that's what all the other smart people I met at the time were doing. And I really enjoyed it had a fantastic time uh, for two years. But at the end of the two years, I knew I wanted to go back to doing something slightly more entrepreneurial. And it was really fortune that in my class at McKinsey and people I'd met at university were some phenomenal natural born entrepreneurs. So some people who always wanted to build businesses, perhaps they'd done a couple of years in a consultancy or in a bank just to get a bit of money under their belt. So they had enough to spend a year or two really taking those chances. And I loved being surrounded those people. And I'm lucky still to be today. I'm actually dressed up like this because I'm going to see my friend Hiroki this evening, who said we have to look a bit smart for his uh, for his Christmas drinks. And so people like Hiroki Takoichi, the founder of GoCardless, Matt Robinson, a prolific angel investor now, Sam Chowdhury, founder of Class- Class Dojo. These were the people I was working with, Tom Blumfield, you know, co-founder of Cardless and Monzo. These are people I was spending time with, living with. And it was through that group of people that I, you know, similarly was like, oh, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to experiment with new technologies and found out and realized that the best way to work on the things which were going to define, in my view, the next decade, and turns out possibly the next century, as well as working with great entrepreneurs, was to go into venture. It was to get exposure to multiple entrepreneurs through investing in them, working with them, helping them build businesses. And so really, that was the journey that got me into looking at venture capital. I started off in the social sector. So when I was about 24 uh, an opportunity came up with a phenomenal entrepreneur called Damon Buffini, who, who, who later ran Pemira, um to set up a social impact fund. So this was a venture fund by you know, any other name, uh, but focused on social entrepreneurs. So people building socially impactful uh, charities or, or not-for-profits. And I did that for a couple of years. And I realized at a young age, I really wanted to work with tech. And there wasn't a lot of tech in social enterprise at the time. And so, you know, I spoke to my friends about this who were building businesses and really fortunately, I got recommended to And um, One of Bolderton's superpowers, I think, is we have a very strong reputation amongst the entrepreneurs we work with uh, for being supportive. And that feeds back, hopefully, over the years in many different ways. And one of those ways is I was recommended to go and talk to Boulderton, That was back in 2012. And I haven't looked back since. So as a partner here, you know, I'm on uh, the ICs, and I uh, also help run our data team and our analyst team. uh, And I've invested in a very broad range of companies. We're generalist software investors, and I've been fortunate to work with businesses and sat on the board of companies, which have scaled from seed through to multi-billion dollar M&A and IPO, and many companies which have struggled on their own journeys as well in a wide range of sectors. And I'm still doing that today. I'm still sort of one of the partners here leading on our early stage strategy.
1: Excellent. Well, that's, that's amazing summary of how you got here. And maybe we can jump into the book because it's an exciting extension of your work at Bollerton. I see that it's right behind you in the right corner there. (laughs) Always be selling. Make sure that you come. uh... Why don't you grab it and show it up to the camera so everybody can see what uh... the book looks like. So when you walk into the bookstore. It's a remarkably bright
0: book. Um, and the, the really interesting thing about it is Bloomsbury, who are my publishers and very supportive, they decided to put my name on the top of it, even though no one knows who I am. And they were just like, look, James Wise sounds like the name of an author, so you're going to be fine. Normally, you wouldn't have your name so prominent on it. But they also chose the title as well. Uh, yes, I wrote Star Century.
1: Congratulations uh, on being given a great name that makes for a headline.
0: <laughs> I don't think that was the plan initially. I think like most Jameses, I'm named after James Bond which James Bond is is up for debate, but normally James Bond.
1: Nice. Well, I wanted to uh, maybe ask you a quick question about your background before we get into the, de- the depths of the book. But, you know, I, I, I sense and maybe it was your education, but I sense that you have a particularly good sensitivity for what governments are doing and how they work in relation to the economic drivers of society. And I just wonder, where does that sensitivity come from?
0: Yeah, so I do. And it's certainly not from where I grew up, right? No one spoke about politics where I grew up. Um, No one really cared for politics. But I think when you look forward, and sort of a similar reason why I find technology interesting, interesting. if you think about the levers for change, the the sort of areas that can really make an impact, not just for one or two people, but for a whole society, right? A whole nation. Policy, and therefore politics, is one of those levers, right? I think it's, it's obvious that... I'm very fortunate to be in a liberal democracy like the UK. Not everyone has that opportunity. I'm very fortunate to be able to vote every few years and make a difference and make an impact. And so much like working in tech, having an interest in policy is one of the ways that I sort of scratch the intellectual itch of thinking about what are the levers that can be pulled to have a positive impact on the world. Uh, And and so I I find it fascinating. And I also a bit like how I ended up in technology being surrounded by some great entrepreneurs. I've been fortunate to often through serendipity, be surrounded by some great politicians as well. And so a number of my very close friends are in the government. Some of them are currently in the opposition as well, uh, and some of them are civil servants. And so, you know, I'm lucky to be surrounded by people who are pulling the levers, who are really making an impact every day. And I find that fascinating. A gap I wanted to bridge with the book and something I try and do through my work as well is to connect the entrepreneurial community to the policy community a little bit more. Because I think many entrepreneurs I work with are naturally anti state. And I don't mean that they're right wing or left wing at all. I mean that if you are someone who is ambitious, driven, perhaps naive enough to think you can build a global category defining business, you probably are a bit anti establishment. You kind of have to be in your core. And I understand that. But I think often and increasingly, policy is encroaching on the way we build businesses, right? For the positive, sometimes if you look at recent changes in options law in Germany, that's a really positive way to get more people to be able to access shares in their companies they're building. Great. And sometimes in a negative way. And we'll see how the EU AI Regulation Act plays out in the coming months and years. But policy matters. And it's going to matter more and more and more to technology companies and entrepreneurs. And so And because I find it interesting, because I'm lucky to be in those networks of people who are building, whether in politics or in technology, I do try my best to connect those worlds a little bit. And in fact, the book does have a manifesto at the end of it, which is kind of rare for a technology book. I actually wrote my manifesto before Mark Andreessen released his techno-optimism manifesto, although, you know, there's a few points of overlap. But I did it because I feel like if you're going to enact change, one of the best ways to do it is to build a business. But another great way to do it is to go and serve your country, and that could be as a carer, could be on the front lines, or it could be in politics.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you tied it neatly into one thing that I wanted to touch upon when we get to it, which is the Entrepreneur Manifesto section of your book. That's a very powerful section, and we'll get to it in a second. And I think what I'd love to do is maybe unpack the structure of your book, because it's an interesting flow. I was looking at it and reading it, and I was wondering where the thread was. And, and I noticed that that thread was sort of an evolution of where our preconceived notions of what the, the sources of productivity in society were and how they were each unpacked and changed, You know, ranging from the mindset to how growth is defined to how the traditional structures of firms are redefined relative to revenue per employee to the increase in automation into the, the, the levels, all aspects of society, the impact that our creator economy classically had, but now with AI is being revolutionized. Then there's a whole bunch of new frontiers, uh, which we can cover in a second. And of course, things like uh, the funding challenges of this new world order of or the next century. And then of course, the digital divide, which risks letting some group of that population not benefit from that. And, and I think you, you uncover all these parts, but maybe, you know, that's just me kind of going through my interpretation as a reader, but I'd love to hear your sort of your ambition uh, to the reader like in the way that you created the structure what you want people to get out of it
0: yeah so i think the point i was trying to make in the structure of the book was this is not a moment in history that's unique it's an ongoing change that we're going through it's an evolution not a revolution necessarily and i think that's really important because A, I think you can learn a lot for history, right? Studying history gives you great insights into the future. One of the things I sort of regret not doing at university was more history, actually. Really understanding the history of firms, the history of societies, history of politics. It's not a very popular subject these days for some reason, but I think reflecting on history gives you great insight into what's happening in the future. And actually, my day job as a venture capitalist, one of my favorite discussions you can have with a prospective person we're going to invest in is their view on the history of the industry they're in. right? Why is it the way it is today? How has it evolved? What happened to mean that now, right now, is the best time to disrupt it? But the book tries to look at that in sort of a a 100-year, century-long evolution of the way we work. And the very simple focus of the book is that more and more people are becoming entrepreneurs, whether that's freelancers, working in the gig economy, working part-time, working self-employed, or, in startups and in micro businesses looking to you know, change the world with software. And that is the case today. You can see it in the numbers. You can see it in the number of businesses being started and the number of people registered as self employed. But it's a shift that's been happening for decades. Uh, and it's driven by these macro forces from you know, technological change and cultural change to policy decisions we've made, which over time, I believe you can extrapolate forward and say, actually, entrepreneurship, once again, Defined pretty broadly, in my view, not just the type of entrepreneurship venture capitalists deal with, but a much broader range of entrepreneurship is going to be the predominant way that people work in the decades to come. That's why I call it startup century. Right. But that has profound implications on many other aspects of society, because 50 years ago, in most developed nations, especially in the Western world, this settlement was built between the state and big firms that said, "Okay, we're going to provide you with a healthy educated populace but you have to pay corporation tax and you know you have to provide all of these rights to individuals and we had these in some cases wars but we certainly had you know massive uh, settlements which were fought for between trade unions and firms and politicians on either side of the political debate uh, and now all of that's back up in the air because of this evolution in the way we're working. Uh, and so I wanted to touch on the history and the forces at a macro level to try and explain what I think is gonna happen uh, in the decades to come and how we're gonna to have to respond to it.
1: Do you think that, I mean, I'm, this is a bit of a controversial question, but you know, it dawned on me the way you were articulating it, that you one could, in a dystopian world, could interpret it as techno-feudalism. And I'm wondering if you think that, if I'm being overly dystopian on its interpretation, but are we, and obviously the fiefdom would be big tech or, you know, the state and are subservient to it. Because to some extent, when you're a creator, you're subservient to the platform, right? Whether you're Instagram creating, you make your money as a digital creator, you're subservient to that platform. And maybe it's a controversial question, but I don't know if you want to comment on that.
0: No, look, I think the book is overwhelmingly optimistic in the outcome and tries to plot the happy path, right? That's what I'm trying to do here is said, this is happening. It's not up for debate. I believe this is happening. The shift in the way we're working is happening. How do we plot this happy path to a, not necessarily a service economy, but an innovation economy, an economy which embraces entrepreneurship, supports it, and makes sure that we get higher productivity per individual by promoting entrepreneurship. But obviously, there are ways this could go wrong. And I think you know, if you look at the, I mean, feudalism is, is one way of certainly of describing the world of the 1700s, but also in the 1800s and early 1900s, this capitalist culture, which completely dominated people's working lives, just saw a handful of massive oligopolies take over huge swathes of industry. And as a result, had huge implications on people's welfare. And the book covers the rise of the factory and what that meant for people and how power and capital is co-located. But obviously, after the war, often in the developed world, uh, we came to a settlement. We came to a settlement which tried to balance the state and and big firms. What I'm saying now is the firm's dying. The the traditional idea of the firm of 50 to 10,000 people, where you have all of these different skills uh, put into one place because of the ease of doing business together, being in one place rather than separate entities, and the agglomeration effects of these people, all of that's been disrupted by the internet and by other technologies and and increasingly culturally. Um, But we need a new settlement to avoid the feudalism which you mentioned, right? If we don't give people support to be entrepreneurs and either new workers' rights to reflect the power that some of these platforms have, or just the capital and skills and support so that they can be so good they can choose different platforms and they can take advantages of niche areas of software and they can build competitive products if we don't do that yes we will end up back where we were in the 1900s you can just switch out you know the big railway companies and the big uh power companies for you know, google amazon microsoft and others
1: yeah now fair point um it's an interesting way of Thinking about how the world could go, even though a lot of it, and yeah, you're right, your book is about em- the empowerment of it. Um, mm-hmm. Which brings me to a couple of uh, really interesting sections. One of them is around finding your co-pilot and, and basically identifying five C's that uh, are helpful for anybody who's approaching building something with AI. I don't know if you want to quickly go through those. I, I, I'll let the book speak for the higher depth versions of them, but Maybe you want to talk a little bit about where that framework came from. How did that insight come about?
0: Yeah. So the book tries to tackle you know, the evolution of work, but it also tries to be pragmatic and practical about how an individual or a small group of individuals can pivot or develop their business so that they can embrace new technological frontiers. And AI is obviously one of the biggest drivers of that. And I think especially for people who've been in the service industry before or the creative industries, they need to find ways to protect themselves against this coming wave of technologies and also get the best out of them, right? Uh, and so one of the frameworks I really lean into is actually, it's not my framework at all. It's by Tariq Ralph. who's the founder of Catalog. He used to work at Wise. So sort of CAMP alumni in, in some regards. He came up with this framework of how you can approach building software in the world of AI. Because there's a slight difference to sort of the lean startup mentality now, where you have the superpower, you have through a REST API access to, you know, the world's best machine learning scientists and global data set cleaned and properly aligned for your use case. I mean, that's astonishing, right? Two years ago, as a startup to have access to that, you would have need tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to develop it. And now you can get it for twenty bucks a month. But what does that mean for product development? So the five C's tries to lay that out. They are, and actually, I, <laughs> I should open the book. They contain are to contain the problem.
1: The problem.
0: Yeah. Budden.
1: Contain the problem. Construct. Contain
0: the, the problem. Construct the experience. Uh, compose the infrastructure. Correct the errors and capture value. And so it's a journey that, and, and the C's that lay this out. It's a journey that. I think anyone who's thinking about using AI in their product today can go through. Um, and I can, you know, I'll, I'll let people read the chapter on it. Um, but it is my attempt to give some frameworks to people who are not just reading this book because they're interested in the way the world's developing, but also in acting on it, right? And seizing on these opportunities. And I think a lot of the book hopefully provides an optimistic worldview, which encourages people to actually go out there and start a business and find the niches in which they can be successful.
1: Yeah. And it's a good framework and a good starting point for anybody sort of contemplating the integration of these technologies. But I think you tackle five different frontiers in AI, obviously being one of them. Um, others are equally intuitive, I would say, like health, space, energy, mm-hmm. these are These areas that I think we all collectively embrace as areas that need change. The one that caught me off guard was housing them. Uh, yeah not, not because our population isn't increasing and all that um because obviously you know more people more housing challenges. but i just wasn't expecting it to be like the new frontier now maybe you can help the reader understand what was the next best one if you weren't going to go with housing <laughs>
0: that's good I'm, I'm sure i had a longer list than five but i wanted to make it relatively available so so the reason why i chose those five is because if you look at the spend of an average individual both in terms of just you know financial spends the easy one but in terms of what dominates their their lives right it's health it's transportation it's work which is ai is is affecting in uh, that one it's energy consumption but it's also housing housing is a huge huge area and you know housing i use that as a title but it's really construction right it's really the lived and embodied world in which we're part so that can be the space you live in work in you know where your facilities are based and so what i was trying to expose through those being the big five entrepreneurial frontiers is that over the last couple of decades we've all felt i'm sure that software has completely upended our lives and it has and it's transformed many industries But if you look at five of the largest industries in the world and work I've included in there under AI, because that's going through a second revolution. But if you look at the other four, energy, health, housing and construction and transportation, they've been left relatively untouched by advances in software.
1: Why do you think that is? Well,
0: there's a a couple of reasons. One is obviously you could say they're regulated markets, which makes innovation in that space harder. The other one is just the costs of iterating in that world. Are much higher than iterating in a world of software right trying out a second prototype of your small modular nuclear reactor is a lot more expensive than shipping v2 of your mobile app right so there's some fundamental unique economic reasons and there's some fundamental regulatory reasons as to why that's harder but in the book one of the things i'm pushing is and this is you know borrowed from my good friend uh, azim Azhar and his book exponential If you look at the rate of improvement across many general purpose technologies, right, not just software and compute, whether it's solar power, whether it's robotics, whether it's in transportation, our ability to get a kilogram into low earth orbit, all of these different areas, you're seeing an exponential improvement. And that has two impacts, right? So one is it means that more people can access those tools because it's a lot cheaper to do now. And I think it's something like 99% 99% cheaper to get a kilogram of stuff into space than it was 30, 40 years ago. And it's only going to get cheaper as SpaceX and other companies decentralize and democratize that. So more people get access to it. And therefore innovation goes quicker. And so if I was to look at sort of where the big entrepreneurial opportunities are in the decades to come, I wanted to identify those big five as areas for innovation. Now, they may not be relevant to us as venture capitalists, by the way. The fundamental business models of small modular nuclear reactors or space travel or fusion power you know those business models may not be the right ones for venture capitalists we have a certain type of business model and a certain world to invest in but if i was an entrepreneur well these are huge opportunities and i think there's many other great entrepreneurs working in those areas already today but it doesn't have to be to build a multi-billion dollar business it can build a local business doing this as well and that's sort of one of the reasons why i already wanted to highlight them
1: Yeah, and I'm obviously pushing the boundaries there on picking on that one specifically. I don't know if you've read Tim Marshall's latest book, The Future of Geography, where he focuses a lot on the base. And it's a a really interesting one. Like, it makes me really reflect on, as a founder, and, you know, if you look at these five frontiers, and you still have a chance to answer the question around what was the sixth one that got rejected and didn't make the cut. Well, I know what the answer is. I know what the answer is. It's defense.
0: But I think it's just such a hard area to delve into. And it's such a a difficult, it's it's also an area which, you know, as an investor, I haven't spent as much time in. Defense is the sixth one. I'm not sure I did want to write about it in depth, but it is defense.
1: It is. And well, that's an interesting one. That, That actually brings me really neatly to the point, which is that it's really interesting to see how some industries like housing, which as you unpacked, includes construction, is so concentrated with two or three or four different players per geography who own the lion's share of all the commercial contracts that the reason why it's hard as a founder to iterate on those is because penetrating that and whatever supply chain they use is almost difficult it's easier to be part of the supply chain of an entirely new space race Mm -hmm. or entirely new uh, defense race migrating away from like one uh, one customer simply because you know we're moving into a, a new world where we need more external technologies rather than housing that I, I suspect if I had to take a, a, a bet, I would probably put it on space and defense for housing. Not because you're wrong, but simply because of the incumbents in it. I I, I, maybe you're right, Collis,
0: but the other thing I'd say is if you look at the number one form of self-employment in the UK today, at least, I think this is true in the U.S. as well, um, it's construction. And if you look at the number one form of income after your salary in the world, so entrepreneurial income, not not salary, entrepreneurial income, it's from real estate, right? It's from being a property owner and and renting it out. So I agree with you that the dynamics of that industry make perhaps building a fast-moving technology company really hard. But actually, there's a huge number of people who are builders and contractors and plumbers and constructors, and a huge number of people who, who earn their second income and therefore you know make a living off renting property, right? And so I, I think there's opportunities there for entrepreneurs. It may just not be possible to upend the macro supply chain entirely through software. There may have to be some regulatory upheaval or some capital structural change, as well as technological innovation that gets there.
1: Yeah, fair. That's a fair point. Um, and love to hear that you had defense on the next one. I think we're living in very interesting times. And I think that that's an area that you know, we're seeing, definitely seeing a lot more founders trying to, to tackle.
0: Yeah. And by the way, it's a sort of strong reflection in the book about where talent goes, right? What attracts talent, where people who want to build go. And increasingly, I see people you know, coming to us. AI has obviously been a huge one. But I see more and more people wanting to work on these big entrepreneurial frontiers, right? Willing to come to us and say, I have a grand vision to upend the energy industry. Like, wow, well, that's, this is a big one. <laughs> um, there's a lot of challenges to doing that. There's a lot of, um, you know, regulatory challenges and capital challenges. So you better be really far ahead of the rest of the industry if you want to do that. But, but defense is increasingly the area I see people coming to us saying, Look, actually, I think I can do this differently. And that's a good thing. All right. We need look at the you know geopolitical situation in the world today. We need great entrepreneurs going into defense. I didn't write about it because it's, it's not an area that I've gone into in depth, but also five is a nice round number for the number of frontiers.
1: Of course. Okay. And also gives the chance for people like me to ask you this to then say, hey, look, there's a secret sixth one. Yeah. <laughs> Listen Sorry. to the podcast. So thank you yeah. for that, for sharing that with the audience. Yeah, um, yeah. I wanted to go straight into the Entrepreneur's Manifesto because I found that is a fascinating sort of conclusion to the book it wasn't even like part of it feels like it's, it's obviously an appendix of sorts and i just wanted to to ask you did you think of this first before the book was it something that has been brewing it almost feels like it's this manifestation of all these ideas and and maybe just give us the background behind it and a little bit more about kind of what's in it
0: yeah so so yes i think the thing that i focused on first and this is you know probably the wrong way around sometime is the conclusion right i'm a pragmatist i i, I want to to write things and communicate things which enable people to action Uh, and obviously policy ideas and um, framing it as a manifesto which is this idea of a you know political call to action uh, was at the very beginning of the book and if if I had to write a blog which summarize or a a single medium post or something that summarized the book I'd start with the manifesto and explain why that's important with a slight introduction Um, and so look it's a call to action across three areas and I think To go back to your point on techno-feudalism and are we at risk of living in this dystopian world where all of our lives are dominated by large technology companies, you know, the positive world of entrepreneurship, I've tried to paint at least, is one where entrepreneurship creates opportunity for people. But in order for that opportunity to be seized, we need to bring in new policies to the world. You know, the the history is... um, uh, is is still here, we still need to break through into this new world. But once we're there, how do we make sure it's a success? Uh, and so uh, I break that into three areas, uh, which is a commitment to help people f- find fair work, find work, and find fulfilling work. And the reason why I've broken it down in those three areas is because I think those are the three big issues with modern work today, which is, you know, fair work, you know, we're all worried about, fairness in the workplace or right? bias in the workplace, bias in hiring, bias in promotions. I think there's good concern for that. And I think entrepreneurship helps blow that apart, right? If you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, why are you starting this business? It was like, well, I wasn't treated fairly in my previous job. I wasn't given the opportunities. I felt my talent demanded. And so finding fair work is an important one. And that's particularly important when you think about algorithmically defined marketplaces, Right, So making sure that if I am going to do some gig work, and by the way, there's some data in the book and some good studies showing that working as a gig worker massively increases the likelihood that you'll become an entrepreneur, that you're going to start a business yourself. Um, So just starting off in the gig economy, whether or not you're doing it as a copywriter, you're doing it as a coder, or you're doing it as a, you know, working uh, for for a food delivery company or or a taxi driving company, making sure that you are treated fairly by those algorithms and not penalised because actually you know you only want to work half a day or you only want to work in this region is really important and this is a very hot topic at the moment the challenge i've seen is that most countries are dealing with this by making a call and saying either well you're an entrepreneur so you're a contractor and you don't have any rights uh or you're an employee which means you get all the rights of an employee that have been settled over the last 60 70 years and i think that's a really poor way of dealing with this particular situation right I think we have an evolving way of work that needs better protections and I think just calling everyone who works for you know Uber or Deliveroo an employee is damaging to the individual who wants a more entrepreneurial way of work and also to the company Um, so you know what the manifesto tries to do there is find a way through that particular tricky area Um, finding work well I think this is sort of trying to find ways to support people getting into entrepreneurship some of this is getting them more access to capital to experiment. Because I think we do put people into this path of work today, predominantly through the university system, which I think needs reform. I think, you know, what I've obviously been looking at a lot of Charlie Munger quotes recently, sadly following his death. And one of my favorite ones is, you know, you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. And today, we heavily incentivize people towards salaried work. If you want a pension if you want to get a mortgage if you want to have you know holiday pay maternity or paternity pay you know in some countries healthcare, you have to go and get salaried work right that's a big incentive to go and do that so helping people find work in a more entrepreneurial world we're going to have to shift some of those incentives right we have to realign those policies which have been built up to encourage you to go and work in a firm for the last 60 70 years to actually support you to be entrepreneurial and i have you know a list of ideas there um, and then the final one is fulfilling work. So I think one of the biggest appeals of entrepreneurship is um, the dignity of of running your own company, the f- the fulfillment you get when it works. And even in the struggle, knowing that you're doing something um, where you own a majority of the things that you make and, you know, when it goes well, that's great. When it doesn't, that's hard. Um, but I think that's one of the most dignifying aspects of the modern entrepreneurial experience. Um A lot of people today complain about finding fulfilling work, right? Dignity in the workplace is a big issue. Um, You know, there's a very popular book, uh, Bullshit Jobs, which actually tries to, I I think, overly say all work is kind of undignified and unless you're at the very top, which I completely disagree with. I think all work is noble. If you can put food on the table, you're doing something incredible. But I think entrepreneurship is a particularly fulfilling way of working. And if you look at the reasons why most people start businesses – and you ask them, and I mean long, you know, all businesses, not just the type of businesses we deal with most of the time. The number one reason people say they do what they do is because they find it fulfilling. It's not because they get paid more, it's not because it's you know less hours, it's not because one day my IPO for $10 billion. Uh, it's because they find it more fulfilling working on something they own themselves. And so finding fulfilling work, I think, is really important. But once again, dealing with individuals who own shares as a predominant form of reimbursement rather than a salary. That's a tricky policy area that needs correcting in many different countries, giving people the finance to survive through, you know, times when they, entrepreneurship is volatile, times when they earn less rather than earn more uh, is important. And finding community, right? I think one of the great strengths of the firm historically is you found your community where you worked, right? I mentioned McKinsey, my first job, I found my community there. I love some of those people that I worked with. Um, Doing that when you're entrepreneur, entrepreneurship can be really lonely. And building networks and community, whether that's online or in local hubs, is another thing we could do uh, to try and make entrepreneurship more fulfilling. So I've made a bunch of policy recommendations. I mean, I can talk about some specific ones there. It might get a bit too uh, wonkish. But that's how I've bucketed them. And my hope is some of those policies would help us tackle your concern that if we do work in a more entrepreneurial world, what we're really doing is giving our rights up to the big platforms.
1: Yeah. And and, and thanks for that overview. I think it's a very powerful set of suggestions. I would say that whilst a lot of the suggestions are, are phrased in the book in a way that would almost be consumable by a government or by like a, an environment, they can sometimes be adapted for the, the VC funds who provide capital and encouraging certain behaviors or by the founders themselves as part of a cultural thing like paying contractors on time, I think is one of the suggestions. So some of these are actually interesting because they can be applied as a mindset, not just a demand of the ecosystem for it to be a more functional ecosystem. But on that last point, I'd love to hear which countries do you think are getting it right today? And which countries do you think are in the sort of still need improvement?
0: Yeah, um, so I I don't think I could call out any one country over the others. I think you can pick and mix great policies in different countries who've leaned into different aspects of entrepreneurship. So if you take Singapore and to to some extent, South Korea, um, the book focuses strongly on what I call digital scaffolding, like the basics you need to survive in modern day life. That's not just access to high-speed internet, although obviously that's important. It's devices, it's skills, it's a supportive online community. I think South Korea and Singapore are way ahead in that regard, than, than many other countries, uh, I think in terms of providing capital to entrepreneurs, actually the UK is in a pretty good spot. You know, the SEIS and EIS schemes, I think, that got going early in this country, were really supportive of angel investing and therefore helping people get that first uh, step on the ladder. Um, similarly, the UK you know pushed neo banks early on, which are far more likely to bank an entrepreneur. You know, people talk about debanking today uh, of, of famous politicians actually, debanking happens all the time if you're running a small business, it kicked off all the time. I think the U.S. culturally has always embraced entrepreneurship slightly more than uh, many other nations. And actually, I challenge that a little bit in the book, because if you look at, you know, there's a study of what parents wanted their children to do in like the 60s. And in America, it wasn't go and be a great entrepreneur. It was, you know, doctor, pilot, CEO. Right. That's what people wanted their children to do. They wanted them to get the corner office, not freedom from the office, right? Not the sort of idea of being the cowboy on the ranch, just updated. It was like go and work at Ford and be the general manager. Um, but I think more recently, over the last few decades, to, to round that off, the US isn't the panacea in this regard, by a long way. But uh, I think in more recent decades, the ability to embrace failure, to accept that it's a learning um experience, to accept that entrepreneurship is volatile to allow you to go bankrupt, by the way, which some countries don't allow you to go bankrupt. Say, look, this didn't work out. And I'm sorry. And I tried to make it work and I didn't. And I I need a clean sheet to get going next time. You know, all of those things, I think, are very positive in American culture and policy, which isn't available to many countries, especially in Europe. I think healthcare uh, is really important to have that safety net behind you, knowing that if your business doesn't work out, you know, you can still get an operation, I think is really important. And obviously the US gets downgraded in that regard, but there's many countries which provide universal healthcare, which means you can take some more risks. So look, I, I could go on and on. I think different countries have different policies. Um, and I think in the book, I tried to make it, obviously I'm British and I spent a lot of time in Europe and in the US, so it leans that way. And I have a you know deep interest in British politics, so it probably leans that way a little bit, um, but it tries to be as global in Outlook as possible. And if you look at the sort of entrepreneurs monitor, so this is a monitoring of entrepreneurship interest across the world, almost everywhere it's increasing. So whether it's Kazakhstan, Brazil, Qatar, three countries, which I sort of call out in the book, totally different uh, economic setups, totally different economic backgrounds of the people that they uh, interviewed there. But across the board, there is a huge and growing interest in starting businesses uh, and, and being entrepreneurs. So I try to pick the best policies from every different country, but I think what's true and what the book really focuses on is this is a global movement. And unless a government explicitly cracks down on it, as you know, some countries did, communist countries in particular, in the
1: 70s, this is a movement that's going to continue to grow. Yeah, and I agree with that. It's something that I've observed in my lifetime and, and find that is is a very inspiring trend, right? Now, with your wisdom of a friendship group within politics. This is a bit of a tricky question, but how do we reconcile the unfortunate polarization of the entrepreneurship or creator economy from the more traditional working demographies? So for example, one of the suggestions that you have on fair work is lower the revenue requirements for businesses bidding on public service contracts. And what's interesting is for every one of these suggestions, especially in a hyper uh, politicized and hyper uh, partisan environment that we're living in today the opposition will present that as the techno elite and this benefits the techno elite and it lowers your standards and and puts you at risk and and we're living in this weird world where there is this prevalent trend towards startups and and the startup economy and the startup century but at the same time we're also finding ourselves in the most disagreement about what is good for
0: any one collective? Yeah, well, uh, so so once again, going back to why I think studying history is interesting, we are in relatively polarized times, but there's been much more polarized times in the past. Um, And whether it's the trade union movement or it's the green movement or it's the feminist movement or it's a civil rights movement in America, there are plenty of examples in history of how organizing and clarifying your message can lead to great change. Now, I'm not saying uh, the entrepreneurship movement is anywhere near as impactful or as important as, say, the feminist movement or the civil rights movement, of course. But I think there's lots of lessons to be learned from history as to how you navigate Great shifts in society and ultimately the decentralization of power, because that's what entrepreneurship is, right? It's taking power away from a handful of individuals who control the firm which you work and the equity distribution of it and putting it into a smaller group, you know, individuals' hands. And and so that decentralization, I think, is going to happen. By the way, just to go back to your point on procurement, you know, SpaceX didn't win a contract from the US government because it had five years of trading history, it's because they had a great five year business plan. And in the UK, you'd need five years of trading history. I think it's now three years of trading history to even bid for a procurement contract. So different cultures are approaching this in different ways. In the US, I don't think that's a political hot potato for some small people, maybe. I think it's more Elon Musk is the problem rather than SpaceX, but for some people and his views. But um, you know, I think some countries have navigated some of these trickier issues. My overall sense though is, there is a large and growing demographic of people who already work this way, right? So self-employment in the UK is about 4 million plus. Um, as people get older and retire from salary careers, but still wanna stay active, they're gonna, and they are starting their businesses and going part-time. There's gonna be a whole generation of people who don't find stable work because firms are shrinking. And so they'll either leave university or won't go to university and never get on that sort of like career path and that's that's a big number of people now right so eventually that number of people will become so significant that politicians will take notice and hopefully you know find a way to champion change and i think the best leaders don't divide i think they tell a story which unites and hopefully inspires and i think that there's a bit of opportunity today for political leaders in many countries to pick up the mantle and say actually you know, we want to be a more entrepreneurial and innovative economy. You hear lots of politicians give lip service to it. And you hear small movements in that direction, right? I think even in the last budget here in the UK, uh, there were some nods to the increasing importance of entrepreneurship. As I said, Germany's reformed some of its option rules recently. In the US, I think the forgiveness of student debt, while very political, in some regards, it's probably a recognition that they, too many people were encouraged to go into the university system rather than perhaps experiment with building their own businesses. So I think there's little lights um, sparking up all over the place. You're right that there is no unified voice for that group of people really yet. Um, and it's not loud enough um, when they do speak up. And I think in the you know pandemic, you could argue it's because of the bureaucratic challenge But the reality was during the pandemic, entrepreneurs and self-employed were often treated like second-class citizens in different countries. Because if you're a salaried, well, you know, you got your payment pretty much anyway. The government bailed out your big company and said, you know, we'll give you massive organizations a loan if you need it to keep paying your workers, even if they have to stay at home. But if you're self-employed, wow, it was a lot harder. Um, Now, once again, it varied by country. And eventually, I think the right policies were put in place. But it was a lot slower. Um, and so that group of people does need to find a voice, and I hope some of the policies in here may get taken up by some aspirational politician and maybe say, hey, look, there's a real platform to be built here and a, and a bit of a movement we can start.
1: Matt, on that note, do you think you'll ever go into politics, James?
0: I've, <laughs> you know what? I, you know how I end the book uh, before I go to the Entrepreneur's Manifesto? I end the book saying, if you want to change the world, build a company. Right. And I think um, I want to work with people who are going to have that level of impact. And venture capital is a great way to do it.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Well, on the subject of venture capital, you know, writing a book. And as, as the listeners know, I've, I wrote a book called The Fundraising Field Guide, which hopefully will be coming out with a new version in, in the near future. Um, it changes you. Writing a book changes you, not only because it forces you into having to take your thoughts and articulate them in a much more succinct and structured way. But also because it forces you to hash out concepts that when you look at them on paper, they make no sense sometimes. And you're like, okay, well, actually, this needs to make sense. And there's a nugget there. How do I unpack it? And so over the years, you know, a lot of my thinking has been shaped by that exercise of taking an idea, writing it down, structuring it, thinking through, and then birthing something from it. And I'm curious, as an investor, you know, in this book, you talk about the changing nature of society led by the entrepreneur. You talk about new frontiers. You talk about the role of AI. How has writing this book shaped the way you invest?
0: Yeah, so first of all, I couldn't agree with you more about the power of writing stuff down and structuring it. You know, fortunately, that's something I've had to do for over a decade here at Boulderton, right? We we rewrite investment memos and pre-investment memos before I see, and the art of that is convincing a group of people that there's an insight here you've had whether it's in the data, the founder, the market, the product, whatever it is, which is going to result in a world-defining or at least category-defining company. And doing that in a handful of pages is really hard, right? So finding that insight, communicating it effectively, structuring your thoughts in a way where a group of people can read them and you know, debate them, um, but ultimately convince them that this is the company that's going to change the world because you've been convinced by the entrepreneur. I think it is a really hard exercise to go through. I work with some incredibly smart partners here at Boulderton who will tell you to shreds if you make any mistakes. So that's really honed my belief that writing stuff down helps you think these things through. With the book, that was definitely the case. Um, and the thing that I've taken away from it, you know, I talk about the entrepreneur frontiers I want to invest in. To some degree, those areas. I'm not convinced they're all applicable to venture capital, but the obvious takeaway is there is going to be a world of many, many more people who are entrepreneurs and they're going to need a whole set of tools to be effective, right? I've loved investing in DevOps over the last decade under the really simple premise that there's far more demand for software than there were people who could build it, right? So DevOps makes developers better, And demand was there. So obviously you give people tools, they can increase their supply and everyone's happy. Uh, But now that view is much broader. And I was very fortunate to be on the board of Depop for a long time, like six, seven years. And that was a tool which gave many people their first experience of selling online, buying secondhand clothes, doing them up, bidding for sneakers, selling them for more. Um, But those tools, those experiences for entrepreneurs, uh, whether it's for a new generation of Gen Zs just going going, Or it's something which can help people who've just entered the entrepreneurial world navigate taxes and hiring and retention and all these other things. I think that's a really exciting area to invest in right now. Uh, And AI is supercharging a lot of those experiences, making them easier to navigate, right? Because you've got this little reasoning engine on top of something really complex like a tax code. Put those two things together and you should have a solution. So overall, I'm really excited about investing in the tools that are going to enable the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people are going to start a business in the next few years, do that more easily.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Guys, it's been an amazing experience having the artist and author of Startup Century (laughs) on this podcast. If you want to follow the book's website, it's startupcentury.com with, I think it's a hyphen on it. And uh, James, what's your Twitter handle? James Paul Wise at Twitter wise and on LinkedIn, you can follow him as well. Thanks for joining us. And I look forward to sharing this and any notes that you want us to put in the show notes, guys, just click on below. Excellent. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me.